Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Lauren Dempster. Welcome to LawPod. I am a lecturer here at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Today I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Rachel Colleen. In this episode, we will be discussing Rachel's article from Ecocide to Ecosensitivity, Greening Reparations at the International Criminal Court. This article was published earlier this year in the International Journal of Human Rights. So Rachel, to begin with, can you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in this topic? Yeah, sure. Uh, So thanks for having me, Lauren. Nice to be here. So as you know, and probably anyone that listens to LawPod knows, a lot of my research has taken place in Cambodia. And over the time that I've been researching uh, atrocity and conflict in Cambodia, I kind of became aware that there's a legacy of a lot of environmental destruction. So we've got a legacy of landmines, um, the bombing by the US that predated the Khmer Rouge. There's timber exploitation that went on by armed groups for a number of years. The depletion of wild animals through the introduction of arms into different communities. And that although these have had long-term impacts for Cambodia, it's not often really a feature of the dominant responses to what happened there. So that was the kind of spark for my interest in this. And then as I began to look into it, I became aware of you know, quite a wide-ranging scholarship that's looked at the absence of environmental harm from transitional justice more broadly and the dominant responses that we have to periods of conflict and atrocity. So, for example, you know, in a legal framework, international criminal law doesn't really note this kind of harm. So if you look at the Rome Statute, for example, for the International Criminal Court, there's only one real reference to environmental protection in the context of war crimes. So it um, identifies widespread, long-term and severe damage to the environment as a possible war crime. But this has really never been used in practice for a range of um, practical reasons. So I started thinking about the implications of that gap. And it's an issue because For one thing, a lot of conflicts actually take place in areas of quite important biodiversity. So I think 80% of the conflicts that have taken place in the last 50 to 70 years have taken place in locations that really sustain a lot of our plant species and um, rare animal breeds. There's also the fact that environmental tensions are a real frequent source of conflict, particularly of access to natural resources is unequal or if the natural world is being depleted in a way that feels unfair to certain groups in society. And then there's the fact that when we don't address these underlying issues and these environmental harms, we can often be sowing the seed of a resurgence of conflict in the future where this can become even more exaggerated by the way that states respond to conflict. So as they pursue kind of economic recovery, we can see more environmental depletion, we can see more inequality, and we run the risk of a return to conflict in the future. So as I became aware of those challenges, I started to look at the way that other scholars have looked at this issue and how they've developed responses to this problem. And you tend to see two kind of schools of thought. So On the one hand, we have people quite famously, Polly Higgins, for example, who have pushed for the creation of a new crime. So whether that's through the International Criminal Court that I mentioned or through a different court, 
that tends to focus on the benefits of having an ecocide crime, which would specifically address crimes against the environment. So while that obviously has a kind of intrinsic appeal as something that quite morally condemns this type of crime, there's a lot of practical challenges to do with pursuing that particular avenue. So the lack of political will among states, the legal barriers to introducing a new crime to the Rome Statute are large, the legal and procedural barriers that would exist even if you got that far to do with personal jurisdiction for that crime, to do with uh, the fact that a lot of environmental crime takes place in peace as well as conflict periods, um, a range of different challenges. So while that appeals to me and I can see the benefit of that, I then turn to look at the possibilities that are offered by the structures that we have so far. So the article that we're talking about today focused particularly on the ICC. So I mentioned that environmental destruction is listed as a potential war crime, but although it's not explicitly contained within the other core crimes, you could see ways that environmental destruction could be a way of committing genocide, for example, or a way of targeting a civilian population as a crime against humanity, or a way of a state attacking another state in the context of aggression. So as I was looking to that, I became aware that this is not just a kind of academic debate that was happening within the International Criminal Court itself. So the Office of the Prosecutor in the ICC in 2016 released a policy paper on case selection and prioritization. And in that, she suggested that places where environmental destruction had happened and illegal exploitation of natural resources had happened, these could be places that were more likely to be investigated and prioritized than perhaps cases where that had not been the case. So just that, that these things were going to start factoring into case selection and prioritization. So the article really was an attempt to look at the possibilities of that kind of development and think about how the other organs in the ICC might take up that kind of call to be more environmentally aware. So I chose to focus on the reparations that are available at the ICC. So the ICC, in addition to having this retributive justice mandate, can also award reparations for victims of the crimes, the core crimes. And it has an associated body called the Trust Fund for Victims, which implements reparation awards, but can also offer assistance measures to uh, victims that are connected to the situations being investigated. So I was interested in thinking about how we might think about the environment in the context of that particular mandate. Thank you, Rachel. So I guess then to look at that article in a bit more depth, you make three main suggestions in the paper and I'm just going to run through each of them in turn. So first of all, can you tell us what you mean by the concept of eco-sensitivity? Yeah, so I guess the three suggestions that I make range from the more modest to potentially the slightly more radical. And with eco-sensitivity, I was trying to think what might be the minimum that could be done. So I adapted the concept of conflict sensitivity, which is already something implemented by the Trust Fund for Victims. Um, and it's to do with thinking about the potential impacts of something that you're about to do. So an eco-sensitive approach would do maybe three things. So it would involve the trust fund when they are implementing reparations would, or an assistance mandate for that matter, would attempt to understand how the project that they're planning or the reparation that they're planning 
might interact with environmental damage. So that would involve uh, an environmental impact assessment, like fairly straightforwardly. And then they might want to monitor and evaluate and mitigate against unintended environmental effects or try and avoid doing any negative consequences for the environment. And then third, where possible, they might want to consider ways that they could positively influence environmental sustainability where that was an option. So that would mean just kind of thinking about the long-term environmental impact of a reparative project and being more aware of the connections that can exist between humans and their environment. So for the trust fund, this obviously would have resource implications. The trust fund has shown an awareness actually of these issues already. So in a previous strategic plan from I think 2014 or so, they talked about the need to be aware of environmental impact, but they also talked about the lack of monitoring mechanisms and the resources that would be required to do something like that. So this is obviously a challenge, but this would become less of a challenge over time. It's always resource intensive to introduce something new and new awareness, but that would have to be you know, weighed up against the potential benefits of incorporating this kind of eco-sensitive lens and also the negatives of, of not being more conscious of these things, which I mentioned before about the potential for the return to violence. And the trust fund might have the potential to incorporate this into their assistance mandate in particular. So as I said, that's something that allows them to look kind of broader, both in terms of the harms they consider and the victims that they consider. But even in a reparation context where the reparation is for quite a specific harm, you know, and linked to these core crimes of um, genocide and war crimes and crimes against humanity and things, you could still think about eco-sensitive types of reparation. So, for example, you know, something that's quite common is this um, draw towards symbolic measures, so things that acknowledge suffering. There's no real reason for that not to come with an eco-sensitive lens, I guess. So you could think about how a symbolic measure might restore, conserve a natural space. So instead of having a memorial, have a peace park or something like that. Or in the context of income generating activities, so this is something you see the trust fund pursuing in its assistance mandate. You could think about how that might be environmentally sustainable. So for example, by training people in more sustainable agricultural practices or forestry skills or beekeeping, I think is something they've already looked into in the context of Northern Uganda. So that would have to be context specific and that would have to be through engagement with local communities and the partners that implement these projects on the ground and would also you know, require these resources that I mentioned. But that's something that's like a little bit more subtle that could still potentially have quite a long-term impact. And you can see that that might be supported by the ICC itself through the incorporation of an eco-sensitive lens in things like their future reparation awards or implementation plans or even if they were considering broader reparation principles. So they do have reparation principles, but they've never adopted an institution-wide principle. So the Labanga reparation principles have never been replaced, but also are implemented and um, drawn on and evolved through practice in, in a kind of not open way, but a way that emerges through the way the ICC has, has perceived those reparation principles and the way it's developed. So new principles, whether they are explicit and the, the, you know, the ICC decides that it wants to produce new principles or whether it's just they're just adapted in different cases. These are flexible things that could also incorporate that kind of eco-sensitive approach. 
Thanks, Rachel. The second main suggestion then that you make in your paper is that in some cases, the ICC might make a reparations award specifically addressing environmental harm. In what sort of circumstances might this be possible? Yeah, so I think in the context of specific reparation awards, obviously for the ICC to award reparations, it's, you know, through its jurisprudence, it's made clear that a victim has to be a natural person or a legal entity that suffered harm and that that should be uh, the result of a crime within the jurisdiction of the court and that the harm has to be material, physical or psychological. So you can already see that there's limits on what the ICC can make a reparation for and that's going to have implications for what those reparations could be. But I guess when we think about the policy, um, the 2016 policy paper that I mentioned earlier, you can see that just because something is a core crime that's quite uh, human-centric in its nature, if there's harms that are material, physical, psychological, that are linked to the environmental impact of that crime or something that's connected to that core crime, you could see that the court could think about reparations that address that harm. So in a case where the Office of the Prosecutor brings a prosecution in line with that 2016 policy paper that encompasses the destruction of the environment or the illegal exploitation of natural resources or the illegal disposition of land, I think they also mentioned, then we could have a court chamber saying, well, we're going to award reparations that explicitly respond to that particular part of the harm and the damage that's been done by that crime. So what that might look like would involve an adjustment of what the court can already do. So the reparations for international crimes can encompass a range of modalities. So we could think about restitution. If there's been environmental destruction, the court might want to consider ordering specific restitution projects uh, or payment for the costs of projects that restore the environment. And they could find examples for this. So there's already jurisprudence from other courts, like quite frequently international human rights courts. So the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, because of um, the case law that it's dealt with to do with indigenous rights often deals with environmental issues. So in the past, they've ordered environmental restitution, they've ordered cleanups and reforestation programs, things like that. The court could also look to domestic courts. So the New South Wales Land and Environment Court in Australia has been dealing with restitution for environmental crimes uh, in the past. This might be quite challenging. It depends on the type of harm. You can see that some environmental harms would not be possible in terms of restitution. You're not going to be able to get back what was there before, depending on the nature of the harm and you know the nature of the crime. So the court might also consider compensation So when they're awarding compensation for crimes against humanity, for example, if that crime against humanity also involved attacks on the community's environment and the natural resources on which that community relied, you could think about the the fact that compensation could encompass an awareness of that in the award that's uh, offered. So there's also examples of courts that have grappled with this. So they could find examples of ways of quantifying compensation in the Inter-American Court, just as I mentioned earlier, but also the International Court of Justice has had to grapple with this fairly recently. So in um, their case of Costa Rica against Nicaragua in 2018, they had to deal with compensation for environmental crime. Obviously, that's state responsibility, not individual, but in terms of just thinking about what compensation might look like, there's guidance there. And then also the UN Compensation Commission 
which uh, was established to deal with the harms caused by Iraq's invasion and occupation of Kuwait. They've also dealt with these things. So there's tools of valuation that might be helpful. The court would probably need significant assistance from experts. They might need site visits. They might need different types of evidence. But there's ways of doing this. And then to kind of circle back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of symbolic measures, they might think about the fact that compensation is not always enough to satisfy victims' needs. And they might want to think about collective type of responses. So again, things like peace parks and other symbolic measures or things like community development funds that could be used to support local developments on the ground, like eco-tourist developments, projects that help access to clean water, food security, things like that. So these are still human harms, and these are still human harms that might have been the result of a core crime for which there's been a conviction at the ICC, but they would also encompass an environmental awareness and a response to environmental destruction. In your article, Rachel, you also discuss the possibilities of expanding the concept of transformative reparations to include an environmental awareness. So can you tell us, first of all, what you mean by transformative reparations? Yeah, so I guess this is the more radical suggestion, I guess. And I suppose I say that because transformative reparations uh, for anything have been subject to critique and debate within the scholarship. So what is meant by transformative reparations is linked to the emergence of transformative justice more broadly. So transformative justice is a concept that emerged as a critique of transitional justice and particularly the focus on a relatively narrow range of civil and political issues. So transformative justice would encourage us to look beyond isolated acts of civil and political violence and to consider the long-term social, economic, collective and structural aspects of that conflict and of the, the rise in violence. So in keeping with that, then the idea of a transformative reparation would be one that doesn't just deal with the violence, but deals with the underlying discrimination and oppression that caused that violence. So maybe to help make that a bit clearer, you would mostly see this conversation in the context of sexual and gender-based violence. So someone that was advocating for transformative reparations for sexual and gender-based violence would you know, draw our attention to the fact that for women, the end of violence is not necessarily a return to a position of equality and that reparations which fail to recognise that and do nothing to address the underlying gender imbalance that might exist will not meaningfully improve women's lives in the long run and may just return them to that position of inequality. Thanks, Rachel. What would environmentally transformative reparations look like? So... To then develop that idea in the context of the environment then, an environmentally transformative reparation would be one that recognised that for many targeted communities or marginalised groups, similarly to what I was describing in the context of sexual and gender-based violence, a return to the status quo might not necessarily be a return to a positive situation for them. So they might be returning to a place where they have limited access to natural resources and a place where they have a lack of input into how their natural world is being used and protected. And in addition, something I flagged earlier is that the end of conflict can also result in new challenges for the environment. So communities or states that are struggling to economically recover may face uh, the draw of unsustainable practices. So a transformative reparation in that context would be one that recognises these challenges and considers how reparations can address the underlying 
environmental inequalities that may predate that conflict. So the ICC has been identified as a place where this kind of transformative approach can be adopted. They've acknowledged this themselves. So I mentioned earlier uh, the Lubanga case. So in the Lubanga reparation decision, they talk about the principle of dignity, non-discrimination and non-stigmatization and that reparations should, should seek to address underlying injustices and avoid replicating discriminatory practices or structures that predate the commission of the crimes. And then similarly, the Trust Fund for Victims has spoken about the importance of ensuring awards do not exacerbate the root causes of the conflict. So they, they have an awareness of this kind of transformative potential. They would be limited in what they could meaningfully do. And I think it's important to acknowledge that a court-ordered reparation may really struggle to unilaterally change an underlying structural inequality. And that's that's just the reality of the legal framework. But that doesn't mean that we don't consider the potential of these ideas and the, their potential to move things on slightly. So the court could think about the extent to which they can be transformative in the context of their constraints. So some of this is to do with process and ensuring that those marginalised voices are heard and that reparation or indeed assistance projects are designed with an eye on the needs of those marginalised communities and an awareness of those structural inequalities and you know, ideally half an eye on the long-term future of communities as, long, as well as the immediate. So they would want to be taking steps to identify you know, intersectionality, so places where ethnicity or race or class or sexuality or, you know, whatever, nationality, disability, where these things are going to influence the access to natural resources and where these things are born of long-term structural issues. They would want to make sure that they're not reproducing those discriminatory practices of exclusion and that those voices are heard. My final question then, Rachel, is it fair to expect the ICC, with all of its limitations and challenges, to respond to conflict-related environmental harm? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I wrote the article in the spirit of problem-solving, but also being a little bit aspirational, I suppose. I mean, you know, the ICC is so loaded um, with expectation. It's one court, and it's also... You know, as I flagged, the court that looks at individual criminal responsibility. So it will always be limited by the fact that it cannot really order a state to do things. So, you know, when you're asking about transformative reparations, something I'd been thinking about more recently was guarantees of non-repetition and the potential for guarantees of non-repetition to address environmental challenges and for there to be guarantees that would protect um, the natural world. So the ICC has you know, acknowledge the potential for that. I think there's guarantees of non-repetition in the Al-Magdi judgment to do with cultural heritage. But these are these are limitations for, for sure. It will always be limiting what it can do. But I think given what I mentioned at the very start, the challenges of bringing about a crime against the environment and taking these more radical steps that are no doubt needed, we need to think about the possibilities in the spaces that are open, you know, so like striving for a perfect response is just going to get in the way of more uh, immediate steps that at least move us in the right direction. And with global warming and, you know, this climate disaster that's upon us, making these kinds of environmental related conflicts more likely, I think it really is sometimes just about using whatever avenue is possible to try and raise awareness and respond to whatever extent that's offered when we're faced with these environmental crimes. So I guess my answer would be, yeah, probably it's not 
fair, but ultimately we all have to do what we can in this situation. And the ICC has some tools at its disposal that could help. Thank you, Rachel. It's a really fascinating article and it's been really great to hear you say more about it. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thank you to Rachel Colleen. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster. This was LawPod.